Start again. There we are. Good morning, everyone. One more cup of coffee for you, Charles. All right, we are going to be in John chapter 4. Last week, we were in John chapter 3. And uh, just to kind of review, just quickly, we can't review all the way through John chapter 3, but we were on uh, 22 through 2036 last week. And uh, it was the big encounter. Uh, uh, John's disciples were jealous that, that... that people were now going more and more towards Jesus and that baptism, and, and that Jesus was getting more attention than John the Baptist was. And this was a big deal, because John was the forerunner. His ministry preceded that of Christ, and he was baptizing, calling the Jews to repent and be baptized, acknowledging that they were sinners and they need to be washed clean of their sin. It was huge. This was not done in the Jewish Jewish culture. At that time, only Gentiles, if they wanted to join Judaism, they were commanded to be washed. They were commanded to be cleansed because they were dirty. But now John the Baptist is calling the children of Abraham dirty, rotten sinners. And that's exactly who they were. All people are and need to be uh, washed of their sins. Now, uh, that John's disciples had gotten jealous that they were losing their crowd. So they come back to John the Baptist and say, look, uh, the one that you pointed out, everyone's going to him now instead of with us. What should we do about this? And John the Baptist tells them, he takes them to school, the school of discipleship, and says, yes, this is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And in that closing section of John 3, uh, John the Apostle, who is recording this, records that he discipled his his. Uh, John the Baptist discipled his disciples to say, look, I am basically a word from God as a prophet, but he is the word of God. He is God. He is the creator of everything, right? I am on a mission from God, but he is God. He has been sent by the Heavenly Father and just exalting Jesus in that ministry and who Jesus is. We also saw that John would be put in prison soon and... uh, He actually would be decapitated for standing against sin and for standing up for the truth. So with that, let's move on to our passage today. And we are in a large um, narrative portion of the book of John. It is quite lengthy. So we're going to go all the way through verse 26 today, and then we'll hold the next portion of John chapter 4 for next Sunday. So follow along with me there, starting in verse 1, John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to her, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the beauty of your word, the power of your word. We thank you for the beautiful emphasis that we have here today of Jesus going where others would not and going to someone where others would shy away to bring salvation. God, help us to be inspired by your word today. Help us to listen. Help us to focus today on what is before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if we look back at verse 1 through 3 there, we see again this emphasis that, that Jesus is, uh, people are going to him. The Pharisees have now learned about it. So look at verse 1, read through 3. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So as mentioned last week, there is a slight overlap between John the Baptist's ministry and the active ministry there of Jesus after Jesus' baptism. So they're, they're separated, uh, looks like by geography, maybe six miles, John the Baptist baptizing, Jesus is baptizing, but there is a strict point here. We looked at last week, an uh, important point to make. In verse 2, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. And the water baptism that John was performing, that Jesus' disciples were performing as well, is extremely important. We see people were repenting, they were believing, and they were baptizing. And, uh, and, and this is the right order for this to take place. Uh, we see, though, that Jesus himself was not baptizing. There could be some speculation on why as far as, you know, if, if uh, we see a lot of division later on coming from, well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and they kind of pick these different apostles and, and, and important people to follow. Uh, it could have been something like that. If you were being baptized by Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, that could be a point of pride. Uh, but also, it does look like there's a, there's a greater point to this. Mark 1.8, I have it on the screen for you today. And this is throughout the New Testament. We see this quite often emphasized. But Jesus says, or John the Baptist said, I have baptized you with water, but he, speaking of Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we see that that, that water 
is a sign, is a symbol of what Jesus ultimately is going to fulfill. He, the only thing John can do is baptize someone in water. Jesus can do so much more than that and does not partake in baptizing someone in water. Although it is important, Jesus is the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit, not in a modern day, often we think of charismatic kind of a way, if you've come from that or seen that kind of thing done before, where someone is, is acting very uh, unstable and calling that baptism of the Holy Spirit, just to say the least, all right? No, this is, this is salvation. Uh, this is salvation, and that every single believer has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You have been regenerated. You have been renewed. You look back at John chapter 3, and, and the Holy Spirit is the one bringing that salvation, right? And Jesus is doing that. He's bringing that salvation. He is the one that baptizes people in the Holy Spirit. So that's probably why it was withheld. That was not what he was going to do. That was a symbol, and Jesus was fulfilling the substance of that. Uh, now... Water baptism is a symbol that represents the spiritual reality that you have repented, believed in the complete work of Christ for salvation, been united with Christ, have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, and are a member of the new covenant. And so we see this the baptism has expanded, right? John the Baptist says you need to be baptized and repent and believe in the Messiah to come. Now we're baptized, we do repent. And we have believe, are believing in, the, in the, uh, the Savior, the Messiah, who has come. And that completed work now and what he has done to bring us into this new covenant that is signed, sealed, and delivered by him. We have the Holy Spirit. And all this is beautifully symbolized in baptism. Uh, we mentioned last week we have a baptism coming up at the end of May. And uh, probably another one in June, several people are wanting to be baptized. If that is something that you're thinking on now, I have been saved, but I have not been baptized, speak to us afterwards, all right? Think on these things, because we would love, it's a beautiful thing, and there's no reason not to be baptized if you have been saved. Let's move on, though. Look at verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, it's, it's historical, it's geographical, the points that are brought up here in verses 4 through 6. Um, but there are multiple ways for Jesus to get from Judea to Galilee. And many Jews would intentionally avoid going straight through because they would have to go through Samaria. But the way it is worded here... Uh, many theologians believe, and it does seem to be the case, it says that, that he had to go. Uh, so he came to a, he had to pass through Samaria, that verse 4. It's, it's not just that he, he had to because that was the only way, but it seems like there is more to it than that. There is a God-given, Father, God the Father assigned reason, whatever you're going to call this, that is the sovereign hand of God, he must go to Samaria. He could have gone around. Many of them went around. But he had to go to Samaria. And we're going to see why that's such a big deal. One thing that we notice as we look at this passage today, as we know, God does not accidentally do anything. There are no accidents. 
I've been coined by saying this, but I think it's a decent word. It should be added to the dictionary. God only does purpose dents, all right? Everything is on purpose. There are no accidents. So Jesus does not accidentally go through Samaria, and then this takes place. Everything in the life of Jesus is on purpose, and he had to go to Samaria. This is a purposeful, evangelistic mission of Christ to seek and to save the lost, and not just any lost, but he was going to the worst of the worst, and he was on a mission to get there. Now, to to get an idea, I'm going to try to summarize this quickly, but to get an idea of of Samaria, you you need to know a little bit of the Old Testament history and the animosity that lied between the Jews and between the Samaritans. Uh, You don't have to look there, but if you're going to make notes, feel free to. In 1 Kings 16, 23 through 26, you have an idolatrous, evil king that sets up the, their, their capital there in Samaria. Now, the northern tribes, the, the upper ten tribes have split. There's a southern kingdom, the northern kingdom now. Israel, of course, Jacob being the father of the Israelites, had 12 tribes. Uh, Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes, form Judah, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is the other ten tribes. Uh, the other ten tribes there are ran in general by wicked, evil, idolatrous kings. And this starts here in 1 Kings uh, 16, 23 through 26, where you have an idolatrous king that labels this, this spot, Samaria, to be their capital city. Now, uh, they continue in idolatry. The king there, his son would be Ahab, uh, Ahab and Jezebel, if you remember that. Uh, You remember also Elijah that speaks against them and against the prophets of Baal. And uh, the the kings had set up idols, idolatry there, was getting all of Israel into idolatry. So all that's happening right here in this Samaria area years and years earlier. All right. Uh, They continue in idolatry and, and even set up their own temple. They eventually make their own temple there that God never has, God never told them to do. And if you go back to the directions that Moses was given, God calls him up on the mountain, gives him a copy, a blueprint of how the temple is to be built and exactly how it is to be built, who is to do what, and it is exact, it is precise, and God regulates that worship precisely. However, these kings in Israel get jealous of the temple being in Jerusalem. They decide to start their own temple over here in Samaria. So that begins to happen, all right? And they create their own religion, basically. They create their own rules. They don't exactly copy God's prescribed method over here. They create their own. They did not receive direct revelation from God, as Moses did, to set up one temple. They create their own. So we see that these ten tribes start doing that. Uh, Finally, in 722, God calls and causes the Assyrians to come invade the ten tribes, the northern kingdom, and slaughters them, takes all of them away, and leaves only what historians call the dredge of society. Only the Israelites who were of no worth to them were left. If they were going to be a hindrance on them, they were just left there on the land to basically fend for themselves to die. So there were some Israelites that were left there in that geographical area. Years later, as the Syrians grow in power, they repopulate... Uh, the northern ten tribe area, which now has just been become Samaria. The entire thing is just called Samaria now. They repopulate it with not Israelites, but Gentiles. 
So now you have the, uh, you have the dredge of the Israelites that were left there that, were, that the Assyrians did not even want, now repopulated with full-on Gentiles from other countries the Assyrians had conquered, and now you have a mixed race of people, which the Jews were strictly against, right? And now you have Gentiles interbreeding with the Israelites, and so you have a mixed group, which the Jews looked really down on the Israelites interbreeding with Gentiles, but also you have intermixed, syncretized religion. So you have the Gentiles bringing their religion in. You have the Israelites who are there still doing their kind of worship, but it's not even right. They rejected the prophets. They had only, even in their, their best days, they only, only respected the first five books of the Bible, rejected everything else of the Old Testament. But then you have this syncretized religion. And all this is, their, their holy place is Mount Gerizim. It's where they built the temple. It's right there. And so this was their most holy place. And so they had a holy site where they supposedly worshipped God. And it was a rival site to the Jews in, in Judah at Jerusalem at the temple. It was a very much a rival site. Now, uh, at 128 B.C., uh, that temple was destroyed the Samaritan temple there in, uh, on Mount Gerizim, but they remained, uh, they remained faithful to having that the primary holy site to worship, again, quotation marks, God, because at this time they had redefined God. This is not the God that we worship. This is not the God who has revealed himself in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, even. They had created their own version, the syncretism of other gods, other religions, and their gods. So there was all kinds of things going on on their holy site there, all right? Uh, what we find in this is that uh, uh, religious syncretism it was a tremendous problem then, but it is a tremendous problem in our day as well. This is, it is, it's been rampant throughout mankind's history. And uh, as we've looked at in church history in the men's study that we're doing on Wednesday nights, heresies don't stop. Heresies just repeat themselves. And it's just over and over and over. And this is something that was happening then. It's something that's happening now. Uh, it is often done in the minds of those who have had a Christian upbringing but are heavily influenced by the world. They will often reject the Bible as being sufficient and authoritative for belief and behavior. Then they will tack on other beliefs and behaviors that are popular in the society with friends or culture, thus creating a syncretized Christianity. This syncretized Christianity, though, is not Christianity. It is a false religion. You cannot tack on or take off of Christianity. If you're adding on to it, it's not Christianity. If you're taking away from it, it is not Christianity. Christianity is Christianity. So we submit to the authority of the Word of God. This is true faith, all right? But syncretism always leads to very bad things. And for the Jews that were there, it led to the, the wrath of God. Um, the, the Samaritan history between them, the Samaritans and the Jews, continues to be hostile. Uh, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they're, in, they're mentioned as well. Uh, Ezra is trying to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. It's already been, they were, were destroyed eventually. The southern kingdom was also invaded uh, by Babylon. But now Ezra is going back to rebuild that temple and who does he have to face that doesn't want this temple made? It's the Samaritans. The Samaritans come along and say, hey, we, we worship God too. We'll rebuild this temple with you. But they don't worship the same God. 
They say they do. That's what happens today still. It's like, oh, we're all Christians. We all believe in the same God. Or we be-. And then you probe a person a little bit further. You're like, that's not God. <laughs> that's not Jesus. That's not salvation, right? Uh, but, the, but Ezra called him out and said, no, we don't want your help. And the uh, Samaritans get mad, and they cause the, product, the productivity to completely stop. They write a letter to the king saying, hey, you should not, should not allow this temple to be rebuilt. And uh, they get their way for quite some time. So Samaritans and Jews are constantly against each other there. Uh, look at Luke 9.52. You kind of get another picture of just how animus, how much hatred there was between these two groups. Uh, so that had gone on, goodness, all the way back into since the northern and southern uh, kingdom had emerged. And all the division that was there, the, the holy site supposedly with quest quotation marks around it on Mount Gerizim. And this has gone all the way through the Bible. You get into the time of Jesus now, and you see the same exact animosity that is there. Look at Luke 9. Look at verse 51. Let's go there. I'll read a few. When the days drew near for him, speaking of Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. All right, notice this. He is going to Samaria. He is going there, and everything would have been fine, but what did they find out? That they reject him. He was going to Jerusalem. They do, do not, that is the worst possible place you could say you're going to if you're going into Samaria. What is the number one place they hate? It is their rival holy city over there, Jerusalem. So they were, they were, he was going through Jerusalem. They rejected him because he was going to Jerusalem through Samaria. And now you see the Jews, the disciples. How do they respond to this? Uh, not, not very kindly. Let's look at verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them. A little bit of animosity, do you think? There. Uh, but Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. All right, that's just a small window that you see. This is still going on in the lifetime of Jesus, all right? Uh, Jesus is going to Samaria, finds out, they find out he's going, going to Jerusalem. They reject him, don't want to have anything to do with him, right? Uh, the disciples, they want to rain down fire from heaven, which is interesting, though, because where did fire rain down from heaven before in the Old Testament? It had to do with, with Ahab. It had to do with Jezebel. It had to do with Elijah and the prophets of Baal who were in Samaria, right? So they're, they're, they're going historic here. You know, they go, hey, it happened before. Let's do it again. Let's rain down fire on them right now, all right? And, uh, and, Jesus is rebuking them for that, okay? So we see that animosity is still going on. Uh, now, though these two groups despised each other, Jesus was about to show what he had been teaching. And this is really important. Uh, he was not only the Savior of the Jews, but he was the Savior of the world. His path to the, to the well in Samaria, his arrival time, and his interaction with the Samaritan sinner was all deliberate, was all intentional, was all on purpose. And uh, much can be said about this, as we're going to find out more and more about this, but this evangelistic opportunity, it did not just stumble upon him. 
Jesus sought out this opportunity. He was extremely intentional in witnessing. And uh, this is something we need to take heart in and really put this in your mind and your heart today. Uh, we often view evangelism as something that we hope might accidentally happen to us one day. Like, oh, I just hope that would happen to me one day where I could somehow witness to someone and someone, someone who is a follower of Satan, a follower of the sons of disobedience, who's a naturally a, a child of God's wrath, who is living in sin, just comes up to me and says, how can I be saved today? And, oh, that'd be great, right? If you're waiting on that to happen, odds are it's not going to happen, okay? That, that's not the way uh, the gospel is usually shared. So we see Jesus being intentional. He went to the sinner to share the gospel with her while she was living in atrocious, abominable, Old Testament uh, refers to it as sin. Uh, so think on that. If you're witness, waiting to accidentally witness, it will probably never happen. You should strive to be intentional with the gospel as Christ was. And so many times we, and, and I don't know, sometimes you might think this as well, but, but sometimes we almost want people to act like a Christian before we witness to them. And uh, you see the opposite going on here. Uh, she is definitely not living as a Christian when Jesus goes to her. So many times Christians will avoid the sinner and, uh, because they're living in sin. But that's what sinners do. <laughs> they, that's what sinners do. It is in their nature. So, we, so don't put the cart before the horse uh, when you're going to witness. Know that, yes, sinners do what sinners do. Someone's living in sin. Uh, don't wait till they're living holy life and then witness to them. That's never going to happen. Don't wait for them to come to you. Be intentional. Be deliberate. Uh, and Jesus was definitely that. He had to go to Samaria. And even the timing of this, uh, some, some, uh, some of the commentarians say that even her coming at noon uh, was a, a specific time where none of the other ladies would have come to the well. All this was culturally done in the morning, and that she came in the noon time because she was probably somewhat of an outcast, a pariah, because of her great sin that she was involved in. And she, instead of coming with the other ladies, came at the most hot point of the day, at noon. And so Jesus even arriving there at that time, all this is extremely intentional by him to have this conversation with her. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So now you can catch that animosity, that, that ostracization, that separatism that they have, right? She is blown away. She is shocked. Here you have a Jewish man who has come to the well and asking her, a woman, which in general that wasn't even done, but she's a Samaritan woman, and she's even, he's even asked to use the same utensils, the same tool. All this is strictly forbidden in the purity laws that the Pharisees had given to the Jews. You were to have no dealings with them. So that, that's none. So she's completely shocked. That's why John adds this at the end. For, no, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans at all. She's completely shocked. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. What are, where do you get that living water? Now, look back at verse 10, and, and keep John 3.16 in mind. Uh, this should remind us of John 3.16 that was just given previous chapter. All right, in verse 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying this to you. Now, think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, this, the meeting and witness to the Samaritan woman is Jesus practically teaching, walking this out, and revealing that God sent Jesus not only to the Jews, but the whoever's also. The same gift, John 3.16, is given to the whoever's, and now Jesus is walking this teaching out. This is tremendous. This is huge. Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah. He is the only Messiah. He is not just the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world, right? And he's going to the whoever's. Who is he going to set up as an example of this? Now think about it. He was just with Nicodemus in chapter 3. Well, man, that's a teacher of the Jews, a teacher of teachers, a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, a holy roller in every way. Shape and form, looking great on the outside. I mean, this is, this is who Jesus came to witness to, surely, right? He does, yeah, absolutely. But also, who does he go to now? He goes to the worst in the Jewish mind. He goes to the scum of the earth, those that deserve to be rejected, those that deserve to have fire come down from heaven and rain upon them. He goes directly there to witness, saying, I am not only your Savior, you Jews and Israelites, I am the Savior of even those in Samaria. And these kingdoms that have been divided all the way back to 1 Kings, you have God in the flesh uniting them through the same repentance and the same belief, bringing the kingdom of God together, not geographically, but spiritually. This is huge. You have Jesus who is going to bring salvation to Jews and Samaritans here. Uh, look, at, look at it also in this uh, verse 10 and verse 11. This is where Jesus mentions the living water. Uh, here Jesus uses this as a metaphor, metaphor for salvation. Uh, but it's also uh, a, a way of wording things in the Old Testament as well uh, that's, that's really important. And we can gain some meaning from, from his words here uh, as we draw from the Old Testament. So look over at, uh, it's mentioned a lot, but I just want to look at two spots today. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. Uh, you have these living water that's set apart from just regular water. And again, it's, it's, it's poetic language. It's a metaphoric language. It is not to be taken literally as Ponce de Leon thought there might be a, a life in water somewhere that could bring eternal life, right? It is not that. We're talking about something more than that. All right, Jeremiah 2, verse 12 through 13. Uh, look at this. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Really key in on that. God says that he is the fountain of living waters. What is Jesus offering to give the Samaritan woman? Living water. 
This is, this is Jesus. It is another way of him speaking of his deity and who he is. And so this tie into Jeremiah, uh, the fountain of living waters and honed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I kind of interrupted that flow there, but, but look at verse 13. These are the two evils the people had committed. They forsook God. They turned their back on God. If you know about Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet. He spends his whole career preaching and teaching and basically has not one person uh, who comes along with him. It's, 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 he's preaching and teaching and preaching and teaching. He is the weeping apostle or the, the weeping prophet. But look here in verse 13. There's two evils that they've committed. They forsook God, turned their back on God. And then and he's compared to the fountain of living waters. And look what they've done. They've honed out cisterns. Uh, we could call them buckets, all right? Uh, for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So instead of relying and trusting and going for refreshment and going for, for resting in God, who is the author of life, who is the fountain of living waters, they make their own. This is another way of speaking of idolatry. Instead of going to the only one who could bring true spiritual life-giving satisfaction in this life, going to the author of life is the only way they can be complete. They hone out their own. They look to this world for pleasure. They look to this world for satisfaction. Do they ever get it? No. That's what the end of verse 13 says. They're broken cisterns that can hold no water. So no matter how much water you put into a bucket that's cracked at the bottom, is it ever going to stay full? No, it's not going to. And that's the way this world is. Those who look to this world for satisfaction, those who look to this world to, to finally arrive at enough pleasure, well, they will be complete in this life. It's never enough. You can't have enough money. You can't have enough stuff. You can't have enough husbands. This lady was on her sixth, fifth, had five husbands, now on the sixth man, always looking for satisfaction in the wrong places, and the bucket is always draining out the bottom. So Jesus here is offering living water that satisfies, that brings true pleasure, true joy, true completion in life. Uh, look at this other one. Again, multiple places, but look at Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 3. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. And this is, this is definitely a great point of application uh, for us as believers as well, making sure that we don't fall uh, into traps the world has laid for us to look to the world for satisfaction when only God can provide such a thing. Oftentimes we'll look, for, look at relationships as well sometimes or look at things or stuff or the next, next job or more money and no, no. Look to God, drink from the living fountains. They drink from that water. And if, if we're looking elsewhere, we just can't. A person will never be satisfied until they come to the fountain of living water. Uh, Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Uh, come, everyone who thirst, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. 
hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This is an amazing passage. It's regarding the new covenant that would be made with, made, and notice that in verse 1, go back up here, everyone who thirsts. This is very much like a John 3.16 passage here, as far as this, this is, is not just for the Jews, not just for the Israelites, but this is going to be for everyone. Uh, they are to come to the waters that God is providing. They don't, have, they don't have to bring money. They don't have to work for this. They don't have to put effort out for this. It's not about what they can do. They just drink, all right? And, and in John, and you have God in the flesh, who is the fountain of life, directly offering living water to not a Jew, but to an everyone, to a whoever, and the worst of the worst in the Jewish mind, a Samaritan woman. And he is offering her to be a part of the new covenant community. This is huge. I'm telling you, this is tremendous, all right? What is starting to take place here. And the lessons that are learned here that we're looking at today, the disciples... It bounces off of them like, like, like oil on water, all right, or like, like water on a duck, or whatever you can think of here. Uh, it, it doesn't stick, because you get into the book of Acts, and they're still just, just witnessing to Jews, just witnessing to Jews, Jews only, Jews only, Jews only. And then finally, the persecution of Saul comes, and, and the, the Jews had to be dispersed, because they're about to die, and everything's going to be taken from them. Where do they go to? They run into Samaria. And, and while they're in Samaria, they're talking about the gospel, and next thing you know, Samaritans are saved. And it's such a big deal that they send down two key disciples, uh, Peter and John, to analyze this, to look at this. And they're like, huh, really can happen. <laughs> really, Samaritans can be saved. So it takes a long time for them to grasp hold of everything that Jesus is laying down here. But this Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 3, again, it's just beautiful. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. It's just, just fat. And here you have Jesus sitting at the well with a Samaritan woman committing adultery, living in adultery, and he is offering her the living water, God in the flesh. Let's go back to verse 12, John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 12. So she asked him, this, this living water. I mean, Jacob, and Jacob's well was the creme de la creme of the water in the ancient day, all right? It was an extremely deep well. It had been around for over 2,000 years. Everybody came to, in the desert area, everyone came. It was the best place to get water. Not only was it the best water, but it had this wonderful history about it. Jacob himself dug, and, and his people dug, and he drank from it. And Joseph, all these key patriarchal figures were included in this. So look what she says in verse 12. You're saying you have better water than Jacob himself. Look at verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So you see a little, a little kind of a sarcasm here. As Jesus is saying these things, I have living water. And she's like, well, this is Jacob's water. You don't understand. This is the best, right? This is the, it's a, a Jacob himself did this for us. Are you saying you're greater than Jacob? You have greater water to offer us than the patriarch, uh, Jacob himself? So is Jesus greater than Jacob? 
Absolutely. All right. And here you see also Jacob, of course, his name was later changed to trivia. It was later changed to Israel, right? By God. So here she's basically asking, are you better than or greater than Israel? And we see biblically, yes, right? Jesus is the greater Israel. He is the one that keeps covenant with God on our behalf. Jacob, Abraham, uh, uh, Isaac, Jacob, uh, the, the nation of Israel continued to disobey God, continued to go into idolatry as we see even here. But now you have the greater Jacob. You have the greater Israel who's sitting there on the well with her. The obedient Israel who keeps covenant with God on our behalf. We don't get to heaven because we're good enough. We get to heaven because he was good enough. His obedience, right? So yes, he's the greater Jacob. And to answer her question, is the water that he brings greater than the water that Jacob brings? Absolutely. It doesn't matter how good the water is. Uh, if you're living in a desert, you need more water all the time. Jesus is talking about a different kind of water here. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him, uh, the water that I will give him, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So a little bit of comparison. Number one, we see that Jesus is bringing the living water of God that nourishes the soul. She is still thinking physical here. Jesus is talking spiritual. This is a true soul-satisfying thirst that can only be quenched by God. Number two, the living water of God permanently quenches soul thirst. This is the solution to soul thirst. It, is, it, is, it satisfies completely. It is sufficient. It is a permanent, permanent quenching. Your salvation is permanent, all right? So you walk around in life, if you are a believer, with a satisfaction about your soul that is not there in the world. And a lot of times we think, what's wrong with these people? What's wrong with this person? What's wrong with that person? They're like the woman at the well. They're going after everything there is to go after, trying to find satisfaction, pouring water in a bucket that has holes at the bottom. It's never full, and they're constantly... And you're walking around with a full cistern of water because you've taken in the living water of Jesus Christ. You've been saved. It's, it's this great... You know, the living water is there, and you have, have partaken of it. Look at number three, just the point here. The living water of God brings eternal life to those who drink of it. And this is extremely important. Uh, look, at, look at verse 14, the second sentence there in 14. Jesus says, The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Now, John will speak much on eternal security. He will speak much on assurance of salvation. He records much of that for us, of Jesus' words. But I think part of this right here is... is satisfaction in resting in the living water that if you have come to the source the source is God and this is Jesus in the flesh who is offering this if you have come to the source of living water and have partaken of that it doesn't run out there is no hole at the bottom and it wells up to eternal life so that all those who have drunk of the living water have eternal life these things are connected together. 
All right, and we'll speak more of that, especially over in John chapter 6 as we get there. Um, now, after, the, after Jesus presents us living water, he's going to uh, make a big shift in the conversation from the water that he has to offer her to exposing her sin. Uh, she wanted the benefit that Jesus offered. Hey, I want this water. I don't have to keep coming back to the well. It's hot out here. It's kind of, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, but true salvation comes with belief and repentance. Jesus would now begin to deal with her sinfulness. The same is true today. Many people want the benefits of Christianity without turning from sin. That is not Christianity. Christianity is both. It is faith and repentance. So she wants what Christianity has to offer, but she was not going to bring up any kind of sin that she needed to turn from. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This is interesting. Jesus does not let her add the benefits of this living water to her unrepentant life. Instead, he exposes her for one who is constantly drinking from the well of worldliness and sinfulness and never being satisfied. So she's still thinking physical, earthly. Jesus is elevating the conversation to soul, to salvation, to spirit, right? Uh, and here he calls her out. says, you have had five husbands and you're currently in adultery right now, even as we speak. Uh, so he's calling her out on sin. Now, this is a it's something else that we can definitely apply. Number one, we're being intentional, bringing the gospel to people, even while they're in their sin, but not leaving them in their sin, right? You call people to belief, but you also call people to repentance, and that's what's going to happen here. And just kind of as a note, as we think of this woman who's constantly looking in the wrong places for satisfaction, for joy, for nourishment, uh, five different husbands on the sixth man now, there is no man or woman on this planet that will satisfy your soul. This goes for single people here today or married, married people as well. Uh, don't ever expect a person to do what only God can accomplish. Only God is the source of living water. No human is the source of that, right? So we can only go to him. Uh, even if you are a Christian and have drunk from the living water, you must still resist the temptations of being drawn back to the waters of this world. So we continually rely on God for our source of satisfaction in this life. Uh, look at verse 19. Let's continue on. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Now this is interesting. He, Jesus has just called her out for having five husbands and living with a man. And what does she do? Look over there. <laughs> it's like a complete, complete change of conversation. And this, is, this will often happen if you're witnessing to someone. Uh, you're exposing them for their sin. And it's like, and they think of the most complicated religious question that they could possibly ask you to get you off of their back. All right? It's like five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband. You know what? Let's, let's talk about the religious mountain thing that's been going on for 2,000 years, right? You Jews have Jerusalem, and we have Mount Gerizim over here, and we have these big differences. And, and she acknowledges him as a prophet, which is interesting. 
If she's acknowledging that he is a prophet from God because he knows these things, a stranger, so he has divine uh, revelation from God, but now she just changes it all. Well, y'all have that mountain, and we have this, this mountain over here. Uh, so how does Jesus answer her? Let's look at this, verse 21. He abolishes that argument altogether. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's like, you want to go the mountain controversy? Let me just tell you, boom, they're done. All right, that's not what we're talking about. The time will come. The time has now come. Jerusalem, the temple, as we've mentioned before, this is, that is not holy ground. There is no need to save up all your money and get there to go there and worship today. It is not holy ground. There is no holy ground on this earth right now. You, you, uh, God has abolished that system. The Old Testament covenant system is gone. There is no more temple. Now we are the temple, the body of Christ, right? So it's, we will worship God not on that mountain, nor on this mountain, but instead it's going to be everywhere. Look at verse 22. You worship what you do not know. Again, speaking of the Samaritans who had merged all this stuff together. We worship, speaking of the Jews, Jesus himself, what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And here again, the mountain controversy she tried to point him to is gone. And instead... It's you must worship him in spirit and in truth. Where can you worship God? Uh, looking at this, what Jesus is saying here, you can worship God anywhere. Uh, you're not re we're not required to go to the temple like they were in the Old Testament and for these seven mandatory feasts. We're not required to go for the Day of Atonement. We're not required to go for Passover and bring our lamb to represent our family and the sin that we have committed. We worship God anywhere, everywhere. No mountain is needed. No holy site is needed. Uh, this church is in a warehouse. It does not look very holy, right? But that's totally fine. You can worship God anywhere you're at, whatever you are doing, as long as you're worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. And most likely, even though the Holy Spirit does work to bring true worship, uh, His word, His use of spirit here is kind of uh, opposing flesh, like as far as you have to go here to Mount Gerizim, or your body has to go here to Jerusalem to worship, instead he's saying you can worship in spirit. Wherever you are at, you can worship, and you must worship in truth. Well, what is the ultimate revelation of God's truth? It is Jesus Christ. Uh, John 3.33 says this, whoever receives his testimony, John the Baptist was speaking of Jesus, sets his seal to this, that God is true, and that truth, we worship God in spirit and in truth, and we get that through Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus, who is the way, the truth, the life, no one gets the Father except through him, then you are not worshiping the one true God. So look at verse 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now the Samaritans... Somewhat accepted, if they accepted the Bible, uh, they only accepted, again, the first five books. But even in the first five books, you definitely have, have prophetic mention of the Messiah that is going to come. There, back to Genesis 3.15, we have a mention of that as well. 
We have uh, uh, several mentionings of, of that in the seed of Abraham, etc. So that even the Samaritans expected a Messiah to come who would teach them all things. That's interesting. And who is it here that's standing in front of her that is teaching all things? Look what Jesus says. I am that person. I am the Messiah. And, and actually, in verse 26, it is the first ego eme statement or the I am statement in the book of John. There will be seven of these. Uh, the verse 26, I who speak to you. Uh, it should just be, it's, it's not a good English rendering, but it should just be I am. And that's coming from Exodus 3.14. When God, through the bush, right, uh, speaking to Moses, and Moses said, who, who shall I say ascend to me? And Jesus says, tell them, I am. That's, that's mine. Tell them, I am ascending you. And so here Jesus is claiming before her, who she claims to hold to the first five books of the Bible. She would know this. He says, I am. I who speak to you, I am. I am God. I am the source and fountain of living water. I am the Messiah, and I have come to tell you and to bring salvation. This is an amazing interaction that's going on here. All right, to quickly summarize, Jesus is the greater Jacob. Jesus is the greater Israel. Jesus is the fountain of living water, a name for God in the Old Testament. Jesus is the source of eternal life. There is no other. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the I am. Jesus is the one who seeks and saves sinners. If, and if we look to the world for satisfaction, we need to learn from this. We will always be left wanting. We have broken cisterns that cannot be filled. We must look to the source of living water, which is God, specifically Jesus Christ. Uh, the cisterns are broken. And if you're in this world, you'll never have enough money, things, love, relationship to stop that thirst. The only way to stop that is to come to the fountain of life and receive what only God can provide, living water. Repent and believe in Christ for that salvation today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent the living water, uh, the source of living water, Jesus Christ, God the Son, in the flesh, not only to seek and to save the Jews, but to seek and to save the everyones, the anyones, uh, not just the Jews. Here we see uh, Jesus in the flesh coming to a Samaritan woman. Help us to see, God, that we can, uh, there can, no one can sit, sit, be so sinful that they are beyond reach, that they are beyond salvation. There is always hope. God, I pray that we would see that. If you can come to a person who's had five husbands and and still living in adultery, that there is hope for any sinner that comes to mind as we think on this today. God, I pray that we would be faithful witnesses, intentional witnesses as Jesus was, as he brought the gospel, but also he brought the need for repentance and exposing that sin to this lady. Help us to be more like that, Lord, intentional with the gospel, calling people to believe, but also not leaving them in their sin, but calling them to repentance as well. We thank you for the living water that has been given, that we can be satisfied and, and, and the, not thirst, and that we can reap the, the joy, the satisfaction, the pleasure in this life, and that one day this will go all the way up to eternal life, and we have that eternal security. We have that assurance of salvation because we have drunk from the fountain of living water. It's in Jesus' name we pray and thank you.